Welcome to season three of Motivate Me. We invite you to travel the 50 states in 90 days as we interview people about their passion. Why? In order to inspire you to live a life that's more exciting or more meaningful. This is Motivate Me, and I'm Lynette Renda. Okay, so here we are, Mr. Rick Cozen. We are in Des Moines, Iowa, and I know that you work for Polk County and you are the health department director? That's correct, I'm the director of the health department. Okay, and I'm really excited, number one, to be in Des Moines because my family is from here, my husband's entire family is here, <laughs> and we're sitting in this lovely cozy backyard at my sister-in-law's house, and it's a nice sunny day, and we're just having a chat about what you are so passionate about so i know that your passion lies helping people who maybe aren't treated fairly or people who don't have a voice can you tell us more about what exactly that means for you yeah i mean through a lot of my work uh actually what got me into my work i mean every day there are people who the things that matter to them aren't taken as seriously as they believe they ought to, uh, because you know, not our our decisions are not made in in ways as a as a society, and our policy decisions aren't made in a way that really encourages everyday people who don't have particular access, don't have political power, to have their say taken seriously. Uh, so most of what I have done in, in, through my life is through the, the discipline of community organizing, of connecting people who don't, who feel powerless with other people who feel powerless. And, you know, when you connect enough people who are powerless with enough people who are powerless, they're not powerless anymore. They begin to be in a position where they can start articulating what matters to them and they can start be taken seriously. Because there's power in numbers. Because absolutely, there's power in numbers. So, first of all, how did this begin for you? The well, there. I guess there are two two phases uh, that uh, when when I was in college. I mean, uh, I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in a you know an affluent uh, professional family, and as the oldest son, there I had there was a clear expectation that I would go to college. Nobody ever asked me why I would I would go to college, and through sort of wandering around, I ended up with the history professors and the political science professors, and I learned that uh, my upbringing wasn't the norm. My upbringing was extraordinarily fortunate and extraordinarily exclusive, uh, and that it was no more than the luck of the draw that so many of the things I had counted as normal benefits were were mine, and that in fact. You know that when again when decisions are made, you know they're not initially made f in which everybody's interests are taken account, and that struck me as unfair, and it struck me as something I wanted to do something about the challenges while you know, changing the world. You know, there's no job description listed in the classifieds for changing the world, uh, and when I was in when I was in graduate school and frustrated with 
the, the direction of my studies, I had a colleague who said to me, and I remember this distinctly, because she said, you ought to become a community organizer. And I said, well, what's a community organizer? I, I've, I've never heard of that. And she said, well, those are people who work with people in their neighborhoods, in their communities, help them identify the things that matter to them, connect them with other people who share the same concerns, and collectively, they figure out what they can do about that. And I remember saying to her, well, that's pretty cool. Do people get paid to do that? And 35 years ago, the answer was, well, sort of. Uh, but that sounded <laughs> like, you know, sort of, at, at that point in my life, sort of was good enough. Uh, so I left graduate school in Chicago and became a community organizer. Well, and you know, they say that if you love something enough, you'll do it for free. Yeah, I don't know if the, the, the people who turn on your phone and turn on your utilities go along with that to some point. So at some point you have to make, you have to make some part of being able to, uh, to pay the bill. So I, I think when I was in college, I, you know, I sort of made the decision of what I wanted to do with my life. It just took a while to figure out how, how I could actually do that. And you know, speaking with you today, my goal is to inspire my audience just to get involved in something, whether it's a career or something on the side, that they feel is passionate about, that, that they feel they're making a difference in the world. Well, I think, I think, you know, I mean, in some respects, I, you know, I, I was very fortunate because, you know, I could, I had the luxury, or if you will, to sort of separate out two questions that we blur together in our society, and I think in, for very, in, in ways that make it hard for people to do what you describe. We tend to blur what you want to do with your life with how you're going to earn a living. And those are two very, very different questions. And if you, you know, so part of what we have to do is encourage people to sort of separate what do you want to do with your life from the question of how are you going to pay your bills. Years ago, I heard a, a folk singer from, from back east named Charlie King. And Charlie used to sing this song at retreats I used to go to that he always defined it as his uh, anti-burnout song. But I think it really is a song that speaks to the question you identified. And the verse of it was, my life is more than my work. My work is more than my job. Uh, we have a tendency to collapse those into one, right? So the first question we always ask each other is, what do you do? And we define ourselves by our job, not what do you want to do with your life? What's your work about? And what's the particular job? In my work of trying to engage people so they have more control over their life has spanned 35 years, 11 different organizations, five different states. My work has always remained the same. My pay, who pays me? varies. The specific tasks in my job vary, but my work has always stayed the same uh, because that's the question I think we need to answer first. We had a conversation about that this morning here at Tammy's house and we were talking about because I believe just like you said you've done this in many different positions because what happens when your role is over, right? Your person is still the, the same but you feel like something may be lost if you don't have that title but the reality is your purpose here is the feeling you get not a role you play, and that's exactly what you're talking about because you, you play that role, but you get that, you're serving your purpose in all these different roles that you've played. Can you give everybody a picture of what do you mean when you say that, that you're helping powerless people? What does that look like? Okay, for example, uh, when I was in, in Hartford, Connecticut, one of the places I, was, I worked as an organizer, one of the things we would hear often from people in the neighborhood is they, they were tired of renting. They wanted to be able to own their own homes, but 
they were met with resistance when they would go to local banks. In fact, banks in which they deposited their own money that the banks would say, well, we don't, we don't provide loans in this neighborhood, a term that still probably still referred to as redlining. Right? What banks used to do is literally draw a red line around inner city neighborhood neighborhoods, and if your home was in that address, they didn't make loans. Uh, so we got, in, we got enough people together and you know, at a point in time when a particular bank in our neighborhood was trying to buy another bank, and the regulatory process allows for citizen intervention. So we filed a formal protest against the bank merger. Uh, and the merger was something that was very important to the bank. So they were willing to meet with people in the neighborhood and negotiate a new lending program that gave a break on interest rates for people who lived in our neighborhood or were willing to buy a home in their neighborhood. And lots of people became homeowners who had never, become, had never been homeowners before. They, you know, and, and what it is is, I mean, you find people who have, you know, are, there's, an, there's something that's missing from their life and making their life better, but they have, they have no sense that they can do anything about it. They feel very much alone in it. And the ironic thing is, you know, their neighbors feel the same way, but for reasons I've never really understood. You know, we have lots of across-the-fence conversations that are very polite, but they don't, really, they don't really engage people in talking about things that really matter. But if you ask people directly, what are the things that really matter to you, then you find people care about the same thing. You can almost witness in the room a growing sense of indignation at collectively being uh, being ignored. But I was taught early on that indignation is not a strategy. Right? How you use the collective power in the room is a strategy to get people who haven't been taking you seriously to take you seriously. So what kind of hesitations or challenges have you found becoming a community organizer like this? And I'm, I'm not sure if it comes from the fact that you come from an affluent background or not, but what do you think your biggest challenges have been? Biggest challenges? Well, I mean, I mean, one of the, the challenges was no, nobody, in, nobody in my family ever really understood what it is I did. I don't think anyone in my family ever under, you know, ever took it seriously. I think there was a, a you know, this was just another, this was another phase, you know, that, that I was, was, was going through. And they didn't, and because honestly, I think they didn't understand it. And I remember one of the most, uh, most powerful things uh, my dad ever sent to, said to me uh, before he passed away was, you know, I still don't really understand what it is you do, but I think I understand why you do it. Uh, wow. That, was, that, still, that still means a great deal for me. You really can't ask for more than that, I think. No. No, and I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, part of, you know, I think doing the work for me, I know it was a challenge, but it was a recognition of myself, of recognizing in many ways where that, that my energy and what really moves me day in and day out is anger or indignation, that it very, it's very, very angry to watch, you know, how, how people who, could be, who should be treated better aren't. And, 
And that, and that anger, you know, that anger is a source of energy. And anger doesn't necessarily. I mean, we have a tendency to sort of say, well, there are emotional responses and there are rational responses, and you know, you always should tone down the emotional responses and act and act out of reason. I think that's a that's a distraction. All 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 of what we do is grounded in emotions and understanding what those emotions are is very very powerful uh, it's 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 where it's where people's commitment comes passion is an emotion right i mean you're not having a conversation and asking people help me really understand your logic right? reason and logic you use as tools for the things that really move you and what moves people are emotions and it sounds like you are full of empathy There is part empathy, but it is it is more it, it is more anger than it is. I mean, in, in many respects, I mean, I, do, I don't define the work I do as helping people. People can help themselves. I mean, there's you know lots of language that my colleagues use about we go out and empower people. I don't have any power to give anybody. All what I can do is connect people uh, with other people. And, and win. My wife, Laura, gave me a button years ago that I haven't worn in a while. And it came out of the local campaign and said, I've won, I've lost, winning's better. <laughs> what do you think you've learned about yourself through all of this? That, that the source of my energy is, is anger. That it's my challenge to control and focus and direct in a in a productive way, and not you know, and not uh, get the better out of me. And uh, you know, there clearly, I mean, you know, one can't you know, go do this. You know, what I, the kind of organizing work I've done, which literally means, so you go into a neighborhood or a community of strangers, you know, and uh, you, you know, in some respects, you introduce themselves in in, in ways they haven't they haven't met other before, and you know, rec and go in there with the confidence that even though they, you know, they haven't connected with each other, you can do that. You can't, you can't do that work with having, without having a pretty, a pretty strong ego. I think strong egos is, is, in, is not the same thing as big egos. Uh, but, I mean, I like winning. I like the fact that, uh, I mean, there's a part of this that's a reflection of not being taken seriously among family early on. And I've learned that when I am part of groups that have power, then the things that matter to me, they get taken seriously too. And I like that. Okay. I like getting taken seriously. Right, I see that. I definitely feel that passion. <laughs> so, so if we're talking about getting taken seriously in something you're passionate about, if, if people decide to do that, because you know, there's all different interests out there, and, and this is a global show here. I mean, we're talking about all around the world. What can people envision their everyday being like if they take that risk or if they're that brave to do what you've done and just to live authentically? No, no, it never felt like, it never felt brave. It felt like, I mean, uh, I think you know, what you, you have is a, there's a clarity uh, to to life and and what it is you're, you're trying 
to do. I mean, as we talked about earlier, you know, you know the nature of, uh, you know, I mean, I can describe you know, sort of the series of organizations I've had, and you know, it's it, and it, in retrospect, it's a smooth it's a smooth path. But I mean, there've been organizations that had funding issues. There've been organizations that had had changes in leadership that required uh, me to you know look for other jobs. I've had conflicts where I've gotten fired. But at the end of the day, at the end of every day, I, I know who I am and what I'm going to do. And there are multiple ways for me to do what it is I do. And there's an extraordinary amount of security. And in many respects, I mean, you can describe it as brave, but I would argue that once, once you reach that point where you know what it is you want to do, uh, you lived, this may be somewhat overstating, but you live some, you begin to live somewhat, you know, risk-free. The, you know, the, the risks sort of go away because you know, you know what you want and you know there are ways to do it. And then the, the ways may change and there's a certain amount of uncertainty, but you know, I can tell you, I mean, after doing this for whatever it is, 35 plus years in all these different places, and I don't know what's next, uh, I know I know something's next, and I don't worry about what's next because there's some, there's there's work there's work to be done uh, that matches what I want to do. I absolutely understand what you're saying. Being on a 50-state tour myself, doing something I'm passionate about too, I don't feel like it's brave either. It just feels like what I should be doing. I get that. So for people to explore, what do you think the exploration process looks like? I think part of it is, and this is, you know, I think it's harder, it, you know, it may be harder to do uh, mid-career than it is when you really have no idea what you're doing. But I do think people need to try to step, step back from what it is they do and think about what do they want to, you know, why, why they do what they do and is that, is that a good enough reason? So once you do that, what's the first step? How do you execute a plan? How do you take that first step? Or what, what do you think that first step could be? Well, I, uh, you know, I think one of the first steps, and it's a step I've used at times, is uh, you go talk to people who are doing similar things and ask them, how did you do this? Uh, if I'm interested in doing something like this, who should I talk to? I have done that a number of times at transitions where I've gone to people who seem to be doing what I'm doing in an area, in a geographic area that's new to me and say, who should I talk to? Where are there things? And that has always led to an open door. I mean, we talked earlier. I mean, Laura and I moved to Nebraska 27 years ago uh, from Connecticut because I was offered a job as an organizer. And prior to that point, every time I had looked for work as an organizer, it meant moving geographically because you know, there weren't that many organizers in that one place. Uh, so this is the first time, I, you know, well, was the second time, but it was the first time you know, to look for something else. And we decided we didn't want to move. We wanted to stay in central Nebraska and there weren't any organizing jobs per se. So I just started to I spend some time, whether it was a couple of weeks or, you know, just visiting with people and say, this is what I want to do. What do you know that's around here 
our people. I'm so do people who need assistance in some way or want to make change in their community, do they know that there are people like you out there supporting them? Like how do, how do you get the word out that, that there is an organization, there is a department, there, there is a place for people to voice their needs? Some do, most don't, uh, which is why so much of our time is that you go out and... Canvas? Yeah, and, and, and knock on doors. Uh, you know, there's a, right, I mean, I'm sure there's a famous, you know, cliche that, you know, so that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, the converse of that is true as well. Powerlessness corrupts and absolute powerlessness corrupts absolutely. I mean, when, when people have so many, you know, things going on in their life and they don't think, they don't have any sense that they can do anything about them because they're so overwhelmed with the, the smallest detail, the idea that there's a place to actually go, it's, it's, it's beyond, in many ways, it's beyond their, their, comp their comprehension. An example I've often used when we would work with tenants and, you know, who lived in a building in which the, they didn't have a completely responsible landlord. And they say, you know, if every day you walk through the front door, which is open and unlocked, and you can't figure out how are you going to get the landlord to simply lock the front door, then all the other bigger issues in your life around, you know, whether the street is safe enough for your child to walk to school, whether or not there are better paying jobs, are about as your ability to impact those <coughs> and think about making a difference with those. So let me give you an example. Uh, at one point, uh, the, last, the last place Laura and I lived in Hartford, we, we lived across the street from drug dealers, not by choice. But shortly after we moved in, it was very clear there were drug dealers operating across the street. And I knew, I knew what you do in a situation like that. You go talk to your neighbors. I was an organizer and I knocked, Door my neighbors and every everybody I talked to knew the drug dealers were there. Nobody was happy that the drug dealers were there. Everybody was very frustrated. So we we convened a meeting in Hiram and Mary Walker's apartment, and we got every and that was probably the newest we were probably the newest people on the block. So we got everybody in the room. Two things were clear. One was everybody knew everybody. Uh, even if everybody didn't literally know everybody, there were no strangers in the room. People had been there, they had visited with each other, and were friendly. And, and they had never talked about the drug dealers. It impacted people's lives every single day. They, they visited with each other every day. They never talked about the drug dealers because I think each of them believed there's nothing we can do about this. So it, it no longer lists, it doesn't exist as a, a, a problem that you don't think you can do anything about is not a problem. It's life and you deal with it and you just live with it. And that's what had happened. They didn't think about reaching out. It was just part of life. They didn't even consider that there was a solution. No, no, that's I mean, because, they could, that's them. because as a community organizer, you have a perspective that is completely different than the majority of people because you were thinking of the, about the power right. of many. I, right, because I, I could see what happens. And, 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 again, and they're thinking fear, which is probably the case with most of the people that you help. Part of it was peer, fear and part of it was you, you have no expectations of what the people in authority would do. So you know, part of the, the stories we would share is so there'd be an, you know, there'd be an incident. This was, you know, this was a, a drive-through drug dealer. So people would drive down the street, 
they'd sit outside. One of the two brothers would come down and do these transactions and like lots of drug transactions. Fortunately, they were not violent transactions, uh, but they were often loud and they were often late at, late at night. So, you know, what we, any of us would do is you'd, you know, you'd call the police and say there's a drug dealer, drug deal taking place across from my street. But because of the neighborhood we lived in, nobody, you would call because you felt you had a sense of the call, but nobody called with any expectation that the police would actually come. And they didn't. Uh, you know, and, but each, each you know, when we got in that living room, each of us thought you know, that the only one who called on Saturday was me. And I expected to be ignored. But when people recognized that they ignored me, and they ignored you, and they ignored you, and they ignored all of us, you know, that, you know, that was in the opening you know, for me to say, you know, ignoring me, that's acceptable. Ignoring an entire street of working people, that's not acceptable. You want to do something about this? And they said, yeah. We'll do something about it. And it took a while and it took some creative stuff, but we got rid of those drug dealers. Awesome. That's excellent. So what closing advice do you have for anybody who, you know, may want to get out there and do something that's going to make a difference? You know, there's a, there's a quote I came across from Mark Twain recently uh, that I think may, may speak to this. And I assume it, well, I'm, taking on face value that it was Mark Twain, uh, but it said, you know, the, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you realize why. And life is too short to put off not being able to answer that second question and second guessing. It's not. You know what, Rick, I think so many people are just stuck in their routines that they don't really realize that they are here for a bigger purpose and that their presence in this world is a powerful one. I think that you just inspired them to do that. I hope so. How can, I hope they, so. How can they either reach out to you or how can they um, get involved or even if they need help? What, what are your suggestions? Well, my contact information, my name is, is Rick Cozen. I'm the director here at the Polk County Health Department in Des Moines, Iowa. My email address is rick.cozen, K-O-Z-I-N, at polkcountyiowa.gov. Uh, but while my role as, as currently is at the health department, I have worked with neighborhood-based organizations. I have worked with faith-based organizations. There are, there are organizations in, in every community that have a role of trying to get residents together. And you know, so much of it is sort of start, start where you think the answer is. And if it's not, the people you're calling will know who it is. I mean, the, you know, our networks, unfortunately, are not as big <clears throat> and as extensive as we'd like to be. Uh, but, you know, once you start the conversation of asking, you know, where is there a place that will help me connect with my neighbors, help me connect with other people who care about these things, you know, start with your faith leader, start with the school, you know, it may take a couple of things of people saying, well, I don't know, but maybe you should try talking to so-and-so. My colleagues uh, exist in, in, in communities all over the country. 
I want to thank you so much for hanging out with us today and giving us these great details. And I just want to say to you, I know you need this anger, this fire, this drive to be passionate, but don't let it weigh you down too hard because you are too pretty for that. <laughs> thank you, Lynette. It's been great getting to know you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I have come to be known as the 50 States in 90 Days Lady, a concept that is unfathomable to most. If you would like me to come speak at your event about how to envision, explore, and execute a plan, or how to create a life that is more exciting or more meaningful, you can find me at MotivateMePodcast.com. And the world keeps turning and I just keep moving along. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And the world keeps turning and I just keep